0: Alright, let's go Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, I have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. We believe that God uses his word, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever word you want to title you wanna give it. We believe that he uses his word for all kinds of super important things, but Probably most notably is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And so we want you to know God and the tool he's given us to know him is through his word. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. And at the very least, I'll call it a win and I'll make sure we buy more Bibles. That's how it works. All right. Uh, Romans chapter one. So we kicked off a brand new series last week that we're calling Just and Justifier. Those two big J words, uh, kind of self-explanatory in a lot of ways, maybe sometimes not. Uh, But those are titles. All right? So it's not just the title of our series. We believe that those are titles for God himself, that he's both just and the one who justifies. And so this, this series that we've kicked off uh, that's going to take us a long time to walk through is essentially a, a slow walk through the book of Romans with the specific aim at answering the question, uh, how in the world can God be both just and the one who justifies? Like, how do those two things exist in the same person? How can God be perfectly righteous, holy, good, eternally doing exactly what is necessary and good and right? How can He give every single sinner the exact punishment they deserve and thereby be perfectly just and at the very same time, seemingly out of nowhere? Be the one who declares many of those very same sinners to be perfectly righteous before him. Like, have you ever, have you ever processed through how those two things can exist in the same moment? That God always, always, always gives exactly what is owed. He has never in all of creation history erred on missing the mark. He has always, always, hear me, always been perfectly just. And he will be for all of eternity. And yet, he also justifies sinners. There's a logical problem there and you got to work through it. And so our hope is that as we slowly walk through the book of Romans, that we can answer that question sufficiently because it's not an answer that can be flippant. It's an answer that has to be as massive as the question it's trying to answer. And well, throughout this letter, Paul is going to provide an answer that's just as massive. He's going to answer this massive theological question within the framework of a missionary support letter. All right, Uh, Paul's going to explain the global need for the gospel and why God is raising up a bunch of other people to take that gospel to all the other places and all the other peoples and nations. And so last week we introduced the idea of looking at Romans the same way we would look at a modern skyscraper. How many of y'all were here for that? Yeah, so I had a little picture on there. We, we showed some pictures of some skyscrapers, and you had a skyline. Skyscrapers are a big deal. Um, skyscrapers are a sight to behold. They are a modern marvel of engineering and artistry. And it's my opinion that we can understand Romans better if we get our heads out of first century Rome and put them instead in 2019 New York City. That seems weird on the surface, but It's true. Like, think about whatever your favorite world city is. That city is almost defined by its skyline, right? Made up of skyscrapers, whether it's Paris or London, you got the Shard and you got the Eiffel Tower, right? We immediately think of these special buildings in these places, sometimes reaching to the heavens. right? So, New York City, you got the Empire State Building, right? Like, how can you not think of New York City and think of the Empire State Building? Like, those two things go together because that's what it is. You can't disassociate those two and so a modern city is kind of defined by shaped by its skyscrapers and we said last week that Romans the book of Romans is like a skyscraper in a couple of different ways the first one is that because skyscrapers are a superstructure made up of parts and so is the book of Romans you you don't build a skyscraper by hanging an antenna by a crane and then going off to lunch right what do you do you pour foundation, you build up, You piece by piece. You've got to focus on the piece in front of you, and, and and as you work along the project, you can move up the ladder, so to speak, And but you get there by focusing on this piece, and then focusing on this piece, and focusing on this piece. You pay attention to the piece that's in front of you for the moment, and you get that part right, and then you can take the next step. Romans is no different. Paul's going to slowly, logically walk through the need for gospel declaration among the nations, but he's going to focus on each piece at a time, never getting ahead of himself. Which means Romans can be frustrating because we want resolution. We all want to pay attention to the pretty antenna on top. Right? But you got to pour a foundation first, or your, your your gospel skyscraper is not going to last too long. The second way. We said that the gospel or the book of Romans is like a skyscraper. Is that While everybody's paying attention to the antenna on top, the real work is going on on the ground. And, so, and oftentimes below the ground, right? That it needs a foundation. But, uh, and so what we said last week is that the only foundation that's resolute enough for the gospel to stand on it for all of eternity is the one who is eternal. Jesus himself, right? That the only foundation that could ever bear the weight of the gospel skyscraper that Paul is building is Jesus himself. And so Paul opens up his letter by declaring Jesus' authority over all things. I mean, that's what we looked at in Romans 1, 1 through 7 last week, that Jesus is Lord over all and he has authority over all things. And he shows off the proof of Jesus's lordship through his resurrection because Jesus has risen from the dead. He now has done what no one else can do, and he's backed up his words with the greatest act in history. That's Paul's argument in the first few verses of the book of Romans. That Jesus is Lord and he can stand as the foundation for all of this. So y'all ready to look at the next part? Join me in Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 8. Paul says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. Okay, so Paul starts out by saying first. And I know that they may seem like a weird thing to point out this morning, but what we're seeing here is Paul's attempt at a logical progression, right? He's, he's He started with his introduction. He introduced his letter, and now he's kind of taking the next step. And, and so Paul has introduced the foundation and laid the groundwork for what he's talking about and where he's going, and, and now he's kind of extending his introduction into the next part here. And We talked about why Paul wrote this letter in our explanation of things last week, right? We said then that Paul is writing this letter in order to... Uh, Take the gospel to Spain. He wants help getting the gospel to Spain. He, he's been working in Asia Minor and the Near East. And, and so he's been doing his thing over there. And then the gospel somehow made its way to Rome. And there's all this frontier past Rome. But, and Paul wants desperately to, to take the gospel, to preach in places and plant churches in places that the gospel hadn't been yet. And so he sees the church in Rome as a great resource, as as a friend to his effort to take the gospel to that place. They can help him in that cause. And Paul tells them that verbatim in chapter 15. But we're not to chapter 15 yet, are we? We're chapter 1, so he hasn't mentioned anything about that yet. They don't know why he's writing. And we're going to start to see the first traces of that here. He's going to begin to speak to their influence and to their position that, that God has uniquely placed them in to help others. And so he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. You think Paul's just buttering them up or you think he's sincere? I think he's really sincere about that. Those are weighty words. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Like Paul's genuinely happy for the success of this other church. Now, we hear that as like, oh, yeah, 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 Paul, Paul's got an authority over them. He's got, he's got this, he cares about that. But some of you remember last week when we said that Paul has no connection to this church that we know about. He's never been to this church, we don't even know who started the church in Rome. We have no idea. Our best guess is that some nameless person heard the gospel where it was being preached powerfully somewhere else, maybe Jerusalem, maybe Antioch, maybe Ephesus, that they traveled to one of these places, heard the gospel in those places, were converted, took the gospel home, and started a church. That's our best guess at how the church in Rome was started. Paul has no connection to them. God has used Paul to begin several churches all over the place by this point, but Rome ain't one of them. Paul's typical M.O. was to start a church and pastor it for a few years and then hand it off to one of his disciples as he moved on to the next place. That's the way Paul tended to work. Read the the back half of the book of Acts. You see that over and over and over again. Paul's coaching tree by this point in history was really extensive. Everywhere he went, he had guys that he discipled and he trained and he elevated in ministry and he handed off the reins to as he moved on to the next place. Paul's coaching tree was vast by this point. but So not only did Paul carry an apostolic authority, the authority of being Jesus' messenger and preaching the gospel with the same authority as Jesus, but he also, in a lot of these places, carries a pastoral authority. And so when he writes most of the letters that he writes throughout the New Testament, Paul's got a tone that's intimately connected because he actually was there at one point. At one point in time or another, he was their shepherd. And so he's got a vested interest in seeing them succeed. He's got a a pastoral and familial interest in seeing them succeed. He loves them and wants good for them. He wants them to flourish, right? But Paul's got no connection to Rome. So why would he be so excited about their success? because Paul truthfully believes that they're on the same team. Right? Paul truthfully believes that they are on the same team. Even though he's never been to this church, he doesn't know the leadership of this church, they may not be connected on a a networked kind of level, but they're definitely connected on an even deeper family of God level. And so when Paul hears of their success, I think he truly counts it as some of his own success. Because he thinks they're fighting the same fight. And he rejoices over it. He praises God for it and for that church. Now that may not seem like something that you know, we might necessarily need to be pointing out this morning, but like, just I can tell you as someone who spends a lot of time with other pastors, who spends a ton of time thinking through the structures and the pros and the cons, the strengths and the weaknesses of not only our church, but all the churches around us, I'll be honest with you, the temptation is there for each and every one of us. Myself, the foremost, to to click over into that thing that's buried down deep into us. To just go tribal. Am I more of a sinner than (laughs) y'all? Like, isn't it easy for us to click over to that place? Forget about just churches. We can do all sorts of things. It's so easy for us to just click over to that, that little little thing that in us that wants to quickly celebrate our victories and and hope, never out loud, but just kind of halfway hope that the other guys stumble a little bit? Am I the only one? I feel like I'm alone up here. (laughs) Every single one of us has that buried deep down inside of us, and sometimes it's not that deep, right? Paul here, he he shows how to genuinely be excited for others and specifically for other churches that are seeing success. Specifically other churches that they don't have any influence over, that they don't have any leadership over. He truthfully believes that they're on the same team and that their success is his success. Before you hear something that I'm not saying though, this we're all on the same team, let's just all get along dynamic, it doesn't apply to everyone. Paul does not have nice things to say for people who are intentionally undermining the gospel. All throughout the New Testament, he doesn't say friendly things about those people, right? You can probably think of some of those if you know what you know, your Bible well. He usually has harsh words for them. Why? Because there are eternal realities involved, and you don't play around with eternal realities. But for those who preach salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross and because of his resurrection from the dead, Same team, right? And so the unity that Paul is celebrating here is not simply manufactured out of nothing. We live in a culture that wants to manufacture unity where it doesn't actually belong. And so it always feels forced. It's not manufactured out of nothing here just for the sake of unity. It is a conscious realization that God is doing something really big that doesn't have our name attached to it. It doesn't involve you and me, and it's also a conscious realization that our sin left unchecked will likely blind us to that reality. And so Paul here shows us how to celebrate. He goes out of his way here, it seems, to celebrate this other church. But look what look closely at what he does celebrate about them. The second half of verse 8. For I think my for I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, comma, because your faith is proclaimed in all the what? So the city of Rome has some major swagger, all right? Um, If you lived in the city of Rome during this time period, you thought you were the center of the universe. And you weren't exactly wrong, right? During the time that this letter is being written, 57 AD, like, ain't nobody challenging the empire of Rome. They are the one player on the world stage. There's people coming along after that. But at this time period in history, Rome is breezing through life. They do what they want, and the city of Rome highly influences the empire of Rome, right? The culture and the politics that flow out of the city influences the rest of the empire. And so if you are a citizen of the city of Rome, you are sitting high on the horse. You're doing well, and that swagger, whether humble or not, was earned, They own the place. And that's, to be honest, that's kind of the way cities are today too, right? We may feel that less, we don't have an empire at our hands, but that's kind of the way cities are today. It may have been two millennia since then, but not really much has changed. Not only do you have an outsized influence of media and politics and entertainment in the city, but the United Nations tells us that for the first time in human history, more people live in cities than not in cities. And so you reach cities and you influence cities and the culture of cities. And Well, not only does it affect the most people, but it also flows out of that city and affects pretty much everybody else, right? That's the way the world works. It worked that way in Rome. It works that way here. And so, and so what would happen like, think through this for a second. What, what would happen if the gospel really took hold in a major city? If what happens in a city flows out of that city and affects just about everybody, what happens if the gospel takes root and truly changes the culture of a city? That's true for us. And guys, it is especially true for first century Rome. And so Paul tells him, I thank my God for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You, you let the gospel take root in first century Rome, it's going everywhere. Everywhere. Paul sees the absolutely massive potential of a healthy church in the city of Rome. That's what he's aiming at. And so his success will affect the, the, the success of the church in Rome will affect the success of everyone else. That's how it works. Look at verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay, so not only does Paul pray for them on a regular basis, he even says without ceasing, right? Not only does he pray for them on a regular basis, but he also really, really wants to come see them soon, right? He wants to come see them in person. God has kept Paul busy in ministry off in a thousand other places, right? God has been using him powerfully here and there and just about everywhere else. But Paul understands; he truly gets the depth of joy that God seems to give to His people when He gathers them together in fellowship. Right? That, that's what He's aiming at. And I know this may seem hard to explain for somebody who doesn't know Jesus, somebody who's not a Christian. But man, the gathered church is just this otherworldly thing. It's it, God has given it to us for our good, and it can't—you can't really put a definition around it, like. It can't be duplicated with a couple of letters back and forth or or in our context, Facebook, right? God just created the gathered body, the church family in this special way. And I think this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us not to forsake the gathering of the saints, right? It's because God has given it to us for this incredible good to encourage us and to equip us and to spur us on to ministry and to grow us up into who he wants us to be. As the culture around us shifts, Folks, that, folks tend to have more and more going on on a weekend. I, I do too, right? Like, I, I'm scared of the time that my kids start sports. Because <laughs> it's going to yank us everywhere. God has designed the body for our good. Which means, guys, that treating it like just one of many options on a weekend shows that we're blind to the good things that God would have for us, Right? So he's given us a family, but but like a good one, not your dysfunctional one, a good family. It's filled with a bunch of dysfunctional people, but somehow God uses it anyways. And Paul understands here that, and they would both be served incredibly well by just spending some considerable time together. They'd both walk away with that with from that as as seeing it as something valuable. It's not just something bonus to be added into the mix if you can swing it he's desperate for it and it seems like he's actively pursuing it right this is not something that he'll get to when he'll get to this is something he's chasing after and even though God would prevent him from going right now because he's got a different season he's got a different thing he's focused on he's looking for ways to get there as soon as possible right He's pressing for it. He wants to come in and find a way to strengthen them and what they're doing. But he also knows, he gets at a deep level, that he would walk away from there being just as highly as encouraged that they would. Look at verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Have you ever wanted to do something that was really good, seemingly God-glorifying, and just whatever reason it just fell apart and you were prevented from doing it? Definitely me. Like, for whatever reason, things just fell through, or something else came up, or you didn't get the affirmation from others that you needed in order to get the green light. But for whatever reason, you thought that this was God's will, you thought it was a good thing, and then whatever reason, it got shut down. Am I alone in that? No, every Christian in the room probably has a story or two to share about that, right? Like, we all have that story. And there are a lot of people in this world that, well, with what I would describe as a surface-level understanding of spiritual things, who would look at that moment and begin to look for explanations that are inconsistent with what I see in Romans 1.13. They would come up with explanations of, well, maybe I did something wrong, so God is punishing me, right? Have you ever said that? I'll be more honest than you. I have. (laughs) Or they'll come up with something like, maybe I'm under spiritual attack from Satan right now. (laughs) That that can happen. Probably not. Or my favorite. Others might come up and try to reason that, well, God must have some greater blessing for Paul and they'll say little platitudinal things like god never closes a door without opening another but it's been made really really clear by paul here in in romans 1 so far that really clear here that rome is an incredibly valuable place to do ministry right It's an incredibly valuable place to invest yourself for gospel ministry. And can anybody in this room, with integrity, stand up and say, you know what, i got a better idea of who to run out there on the mound than the Apostle Paul. Maybe I should go, right? You think Paul would have some success if he went out to Rome? Yeah, he says exactly that. And so, Paul being prevented from going to Rome by this point, cannot be, cannot be, because someone else would have been more successful. And it cannot be because some other place would have been more strategic for Paul. Yeah, God is using Paul powerfully, but where better to put him than the hub of the universe? Right? Both of those explanations are out of bounds. But according to verse 13 here, Paul truly believes that one day, just one of these days, God's going to give him the green light and he's finally going to get to Rome. And then when that day comes, quote, a great harvest among the Gentiles will happen. Paul believes that God will one day use him powerfully there. And so it may be lying just a little bit beneath the surface, but there's actually a very significant theological question that's raised by verse 13 here. And the question is, why in the world would God prevent Paul from going to Rome? I mean, Paul wanted to go. That's obvious. The location is highly strategic for the gospel. That's also obvious. Paul would have been incredibly successful there. That's also, also obvious. Why in the world, then, would God stand in the way of that? And I raised this question this morning exactly like this because some of you, I know, walked in the door this morning with a worldview that would struggle to process that with all these variables in place. But there's a variable that has not been dealt with yet, accounted for yet. It's just lordship. Right? Just lordship. At the end of the day, Paul's preference... His desire, even his perceived potential success, takes a back seat to what God wants for him in that moment. True, most of the time, God's will for your life is actually the obvious next step. God made you good at X, there's the open door, walk through it. That's nine times out of ten God's will for your life. But then there's that one time out of ten. Right? There are other times when the sovereign and good creator of the cosmos just says no. And he has the authority and the goodness to say that. And it's in that moment that the lordship of Jesus in your heart and life actually becomes lordship. Because until that moment, it's just Jesus acting as a counselor cheering on your decisions, right? But when that moment finally gets here, when the rubber finally meets the road on that, Jesus is clearly seen as king. This is where lordship plays out. And so Paul's preference takes a back seat to what God wants for him. Despite what Paul believes about that potential future success. It'll come one day. Right now he's saying no. The variable that we fail to account for is just the sheer lordship of God. about yourself as you begin to process through the decisions whether daily or big monumental ones you got the good thing you got the open door you've got the perceived success have you accounted for the lordship variable look at verse 14 i am under obligation both to greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says that he's obligated to Greeks and barbarians. And most people, there's some debate, but most people think the implication there is that he is obligated, he has a gospel obligation to those who are uh, called to preach to those who are both uh, wise and intelligent and educated and those who very much are not. Right? That, and that's kind of the way we use the word barbarian in our culture, right? It had, a, it had a heavier, more literal context in the Roman world, but we think Paul is talking about those who are educated and classed and, and just ahead of everybody culturally and those who are living out in the woods somewhere doing weird stuff. All right, That's what he's talking about. And Rome has both of those groups in spades. Right? They've got both. On a real world level, then, this means that the church in Rome needs to be powerfully equipped to preach the gospel to both of those groups at the same time. That's not easy to do. Like, how do you have a church that's both for the intelligent and the the farm boy? Right? That's not easy. But God equips churches to do whatever God equips churches to do. And so Paul is ready to see them whenever God gives him the green light to go. And his plan is that when he gets there, he's going to help them. He's going to use that church to reap a great harvest, to be used in a powerful, powerful way. It doesn't matter how small and insignificant that church may feel. Right? How do you think the church in Rome felt about being in the city of Rome? Think they were walking around with a swagger? They may feel inconsequential in a city that engulfs them. In fact, they likely did. They probably feel like their voice is drowned out by a sea of other, far more important voices. But Paul sees them and the potential that God has given them to significantly change the world. And I'll just be honest with you, I, I tend to see Nashville Baptist Church the same way. I I do. Uh, Our city's never going to be as big a deal as Rome was. Not even a little bit. But God does bring a lot of people to Nashua, right? I mean, we have people coming from here all over the world to work in the businesses and industries that are here. And then many of them go back home. Like some were here for like three months. Some are here for six months, some are here for 10 years, some are here for life. But there's this ebb and flow that happens in our city, much like first century Rome would have had. Masses of people. I've been in the house hunting market. You know how hard it is to buy a house in Nashua? We got companies like BAE just throwing money at people right now. Makes it difficult for a pastor to buy a house. (laughs) Just saying There's this ebb and flow in our city. We have so, so much potential in our city to influence change, don't we? Not only that, but like Nashua seems to have an outsized influence on its state. Like if you if you really look into the politics of our city, people pay more attention to Nashua than they should. And so what happens if there is a healthy, vibrant, gospel declaring church in the city of Nashua? Because we have the potential to affect massive change in our city, in our state, and yeah, even our world. Yes, even our world. And if God would choose to use us powerfully in that way, just think of how far that influence would spread. And so in my estimation, we need the same thing that Paul's Roman audience needed, don't we? Which is what? What does he give them? A gospel skyscraper. Resolutely founded in the nature and work and lordship of Jesus, built piece by piece all the way to the tip top. That's what we need to. Despite our size, despite our perceived lack of influence, this is what the Apostle Paul tells the church that he desperately wants to see be successful. Which leads me to verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, forget about the size of influence, right? We've got the eternity-shaping power of the gospel on our side. Like, what in the world could you ever be ashamed of? That's Paul's point there. Like, when you have the gospel in your back pocket, what in the world would you be scared of? How, what in the world would you be timid about? What in the world would you think? I can't possibly influence. No, the gospel does what the gospel wants. Full stop. Because you don't have anything, you don't bring anything to the table, but you bring the gospel to the table and the gospel does work. That's Paul's point. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid the debt for our sin and he gives us His own righteousness in exchange. It doesn't matter what your background is at that moment. Right? It doesn't matter the size of your influence in that moment. You stand with Jesus. He's got enough influence for the two of you. Right? He reconciles us to himself and he stands as our advocate before the Father. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you now stand before the righteous one with the righteous one. How? Verse 17 tells us. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? You don't bring anything to the table. Neither do I. That's the point. Those who are seen as righteous in God's eyes are seen that way because they are clothed in the righteousness of the one who is righteous for us. It is through faith. And the synonym of faith is just trust. Right? We, we kind of make this this, this over-spiritualized word. We give uh, church vocabulary more weight than they're due a lot of the time. It's, faith is just another word for trust. And it's through our trust in God's finished work on our behalf that we stand blameless before Him. But without that faith, hear me, without that faith, you choose to stand before Him alone. Without that faith, a faith that places your hope and your trust in Jesus and His work for you, you choose to stand before the Father with nothing but your own righteousness to offer up. Some of you are desperately hoping that God will grade on the curve. He is infinitely just. He always, always, always gives to every man exactly what He deserves. he who is infinitely just will dole out the punishment that our sin has earned. But he has not only seated himself on the throne as infinitely just, he is also sitting on the throne as infinitely justifier. The one who justifies and the righteous stand by what? Faith. He declares them righteous because the perfect justice has already been poured out on another. See, this is the the math problem that had to be solved. How can he be both just and justifier? How can he be both the one who gives exactly what is deserved and the one who justifies sinners, declares righteous sinners who have no righteousness in themselves? He pours out the punishment on someone else. A substitute. A lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And He gives you His righteousness in return. He declares them righteous because perfect justice has already been poured out on Jesus. Jesus took your sin and gives you His righteousness. And so my hope for you this morning is that you would lay down your desperate and vain attempts to make yourself appear righteous before a holy God. It won't go well. And you would instead place your faith in Jesus the one who loves you enough that he came to suffer the righteous wrath of God so you wouldn't have to, that Jesus. The one who lived sinless life that you and I are incapable of living, that Jesus. The one who went to the cross with the joy set before him, despising its shame and defeated death itself, that Jesus. My hope for you this morning is that you would finally come and respond to the unmatchless and eternal grace of King Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want somebody to walk you through that step of trusting him in faith. If you're here today and you're already a follower of Jesus, it's your opportunity to respond to God's word too. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning in to God, pressing into him this morning. Listen, I think there's some things that we can mimic the Apostle Paul in that he chased after just in this paragraph that we read, right? Like, His view of and consistent prayer for others. How's that going for you? His longing to be united in fellowship. His submission to God's authority in his life, regardless of preference and perceived success. His life of discipling others to understand the gospel and proclaim it powerfully. His desperate desire to see as many as possible come to salvation. Do we have some things that we can repent of this morning and lean in? Yeah. What is God calling you to take a step of obedience in today? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But Let's all respond to God's word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you that every weighty word has been given to us for our good. Thank you for being the God that loves us enough to pass the letter on down to us too. Can we see the influence of our city and we feel the pressure and the, the smallness of having an inconsequential voice. You've given us the power of the gospel on our side. Changes Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, You save who you want to save. And you use who you want to use. And so even inconsequential us can and will be used powerfully for your gospel purposes. So would you strengthen us as a church family? Encourage us and equip us and call us to move onward. There's so many things that we could do better around here. Beginning with me. But you take broken vessels? You take dysfunctional people and you unite them into a family that somehow brings you glory and somehow moves your fame another step closer to heaven. So would you do that today? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would people see your face today and be forever changed? like Moses coming down from a mountain, could not but help show that he had seen the God. Father, you are good to us. Call us to repentance. Give us rest in you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.